We were doing pretty good. Okay. <laughs> but the government of Guatemala banned this song, the Magnificat. They wouldn't let anybody sing or read Mary's song in public. And you kind of wonder why anybody did that, because nobody ever banned Away in a Manger, and nobody banned Santa Baby, although they should. That one should be banned and out. I wonder why they banned that song. Well, the reason is, is because it was considered to be too subversive. It was thought that if people, especially downtrodden people, especially hopeless people, especially marginalized people or oppressed people, if they ever heard these words of this song about what God was up to, written by this illiterate teenage Jewish peasant girl, it might incite hopeless people to take hope. And it might encourage them then to take action. So the government of Guatemala said, we're not singing that song because we don't want any of that stuff going on around here. So they went and banned it. Well, tonight, for just a few minutes, let's consider together the greatest Christmas song ever written, written by the mother of Jesus, Mary. If you want to follow in the Bible, it's in Luke chapter 1, although otherwise you can just listen with your ears. Uh, This is Luke 1. I'm going to start at verse 46. And Mary said, or I guess we could say, and Mary sang. And Mary sang, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And that's the song of Mary, the greatest Christmas song of all time. And of course, it also is part of God's word. Now, when Mary sang her song, you know, back in the first century there in in Israel, everybody knew who the king was. Everybody knew it. The king was a guy by the name of Herod. He was known as Herod the Great. And we actually know quite a bit about Herod the Great thanks to the Jewish historian named Josephus. And he writes a lot of information about Herod that's not included in the Bible, but nevertheless gives us a little bit of background to who he was, and then we understand how he acted in the Bible, which recorded in Matthew chapter 2. But Herod was given the title King of the Jews. He was given that title about 30 years earlier by the Roman Senate, and he had to fight for that title. He had to fight and conquer Israel for that title. He knew how to get what he wanted. Herod the Great knew how the world worked. 
He knew how power operated in this world. He got to where he was by hitching his wagon to a star of Julius Caesar. But then maybe you know when Julius Caesar was assassinated by Mark Anthony, was overthrown, Herod the Great said, well, I was really kind of a Mark Anthony kind of guy. And then when Mark Anthony was overthrown by Caesar Augustus, Herod managed to convince everybody that he was actually on Caesar Augustus' side all along. See, Herod the Great knew how it worked. He knew where power was. He knew how to manipulate it. He knew how to hold on to it. And he knew how to get it. He was married to at least 10 wives. And he had 43 children, or somewhere in that neighborhood or so, Most of his marriages were politically motivated. They were all about obtaining power and holding on to power because he knew how the world works. The only wife that he ever loved, out of all those wives, he only loved one of them, the only wife he ever loved, according to Josephus, was a woman by the name of, do you know? Oh, Miriam. He loved Miriam his beloved wife, but he was kind of obsessive about her. She bore him five children in seven years, but he didn't trust her loyalty. And so can you believe this? He had his wife, the only wife that he ever really loved. He had her executed just to make sure he could hold on to his position and to his power. He didn't like her mother either. So he had his mother-in-law executed so he could hang on to his position. He had two of his brothers-in-law executed. He thought that two of the sons that were born to him by Miriam were getting a little ambitious for the throne, and can you believe it? He had both of those sons smothered to death. His barber kind of stuck up for those sons, and so he had the barber executed because he thought the barber would get kind of dangerous. On Herod the Great's deathbed, he put another one of his sons into prison because he thought that son was getting a little ambitious for the throne. Herod the Great was five days away from dying. And the son at one point thought that Herod had died and so he tried to bribe the guard to get him out of prison and so on. But the guard immediately went and told Herod and Herod had his third son executed just five days before Herod himself was going to die. Herod the Great was known, most of all, for his magnificent building projects. And if you go to Israel or know anything about Israel and so on, the remains of Herod's building projects are all over the place. They've been uncovered by archaeologists and in many ways reconstructed by the archaeologists. They're all over. He built palaces and fortresses. Anybody ever been to Masada? Masada, then you know about Herod the Great's palace that juts out on the northern ledge of that rock face. Just a magnificent three-tiered palace. He built something called the Herodian just outside of Bethlehem, a volcano-shaped palace at the top with a swimming pool at the bottom. And uh, in fact, archaeologists just discovered only about six years ago that Herod the Great is buried at the Herodian. Just outside of Bethlehem, they discovered his tomb and the sarcophagus that held Herod the Great. His most magnificent building project, though, was that he constructed a brand new, beautiful, magnificent temple in Jerusalem. A huge temple mount, first of all, and then on top of that, a 13-story 
temple structure. And this was built just about 20, 25 years or so before Jesus was born. So the temple that Jesus came to was this huge, beautiful, magnificent temple in Jerusalem. So there's building projects all over the place. He had a nickname, as I said. He was called Herod the Great. Anybody want to guess who gave him that nickname? He did. He gave himself the nickname. I'm Herod the Great. I'm the greatest king of all time. I'm the king of the Jews. And he built that temple to kind of get in good with the Jews because the Jews hated his guts. But he built them a temple and said, now do you like me? And they said, no, we still don't like you, but thanks for the temple. You know, a lot of stories in Jesus' day, some of you might have noticed this, but a lot of the stories are about landowners, you know, and people who own land, and then they go away, and then they come back, and they check on their land and their servants and so on. There's a reason you see so many of those kinds of stories in Jesus' life, because that's exactly what was going on economically. Herod the Great constructed those building projects on the backs of the poor. And so Jesus tells these kinds of stories because that's exactly what was going on, especially in his own family with poor people like Mary and Mary's family. And they had lost their land and they were hopeless in that economy. They became peasants and serfs and the wealthy particularly Herod the Great, enriched himself on the backs of their suffering. And so the Jews hated him. When he was dying, and he knew it, he knew that nobody in Israel would weep or mourn his death. In fact, they'd probably throw a party. So what he had done was that he actually had 70 of the most elite citizens in Israel put in prison, and held in a hippodrome in Jericho, and he gave orders to his sister Salome that upon his death, those 70 elite citizens were also to be executed because he wanted there to be crying and weeping and mourning in Israel when he died. This was the fabulously wealthy, unbelievably powerful, Herod the Great, King of the Jews, Oh, he knew how the world worked. He knew how to get power. He knew who was up and who was down and who was in and who was out. He knew how to control people and get what he wanted. He knew how to outmaneuver and outsmart and outfox and intimidate everybody around him. And one day, some strangers came to Jerusalem. They were called magi. And we know them as these wise men from the east. And they were traveling and they came into Jerusalem and they came asking this question. Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Now that was a political title. Nobody got that title after Herod the Great. Herod the Great had that title and he earned it. He, he fought for it with blood. And then these strangers show up and they say, where is the one who is born, you know, the next King of the Jews. And now you understand the next phrase in Matthew 2. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And now you understand the next phrase in Matthew 2. And all Jerusalem with him. Because when Herod is disturbed, when Herod isn't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Meanwhile... Little meek and mild Mary 
sings her song. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Who do you think that might be? He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Who's on the throne? He has sent the rich away empty. Who's rich? See, nobody's selling that kind of stuff on a Hallmark card. Nobody was tuning into the radio back in those days to hear Bing Crosby sing, He has sent the rich away empty. Mary said these words often enough, and she sang these words so many times that they got remembered, that they got known, that they got written down, that they got put in a book so that we can read them tonight. Be very careful, Mary. Be very careful. You keep going around talking about kings being dethroned because a little baby's coming along. Somebody's going to get mad. That kind of talk's going to get somebody crucified, Mary. You keep singing that. And of course, eventually, it did. There were only two people initially, only two people who really understood what was going on when that little baby was born in that way. Only two people. One of them was the most powerful person in the country, Herod the Great. The other one who understood it was a powerless, penniless, illiterate, maybe 14-year-old Jewish peasant girl. To the one... The coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus on the earth was the foundation of hope. To the other one, it was a source of fear. Interesting in that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, speaking of Christmas carols, and so I love that song too, where it says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All the hopes of Mary and her poor family, and Israel, who had been exiled and beaten down, all those hopes, and then all the fears of Herod, (laughs) king of the Jews? What do you mean, who's the next king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. Hopes and fears. To the one, the coming of Jesus was the foundation of the hope of the world. To the other, It was a catastrophe to be feared, to prevent it at all costs, up to and including genocide. And Mary sings her little song. You see, there's a little bit of a pattern to the song. I don't know if you noticed that as we read it, you know, about what God is doing. You know, He has brought down rulers. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, but he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. You see what God is doing here? He is reversing everything. And this is a very important theme in Scripture. This is the beginning of what some New Testament scholars call the great reversal. You know, the great reversal, Dallas Willard a wonderful author on spiritual life and formation and so on, speaks of this as the law of inversion. I love that. The law of inversion, which is the great law of the kingdom of God. See, the big question in life is, you know, who's in? Who's out? Who's up? Who's down? Who are the winners? Who are the losers? We all want to know that, right? We all want to know. 
And what Mary is saying here in her song is, is that the world has got everything pretty much all wrong. Because our world says, oh, we know who the blessed are. You know, blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the successful. Blessed are the secure. Blessed are those who get what they're going after. Blessed are those who know how to climb the ladder. Blessed are those who know who counts and who doesn't count. Blessed is Herod the Great. And now little Mary says, now God is going to turn everything upside down. And the law of inversion begins to be played out. And you wonder, who's going to listen to this little, illiterate, teenage, Jewish peasant girl as she sings? Anybody in here need to hear her words tonight? Anybody here need to know Mary's song? Kind of a funny thing. You know, a couple of chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, uh, a rabbi comes along and you listen to his words and it begins to sound kind of familiar. He would say things like, blessed are you who are poor. Think about how that would sound to a bunch of poor people like Mary and her family and others and so on. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are those who hunger now. Why? Was it a good thing to be hungry? No, because the kingdom of God is now available to all kinds of people, including poor people and hungry people and oppressed people. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, said that rabbi, because you will go hungry. Anybody want to take a wild guess who said that stuff? Yeah, Jesus, you're exactly right. You got the right answer in church. Nice going. Jesus said that, of course. Jesus said it. And let me ask you this. Where do you think he got his material? I'll tell you where I think he got it. I think he got it from his mommy. That's what I think. I think he got it from his mother. Now, I know I know this theme goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the prophets who are talking about God coming someday to turn everything upside down. I know that. But the human voice through whom Jesus heard those words were through his own mother's song. I wonder how many times Mary sang that song. I wonder if she taught Jesus around the kitchen table. Here's the song I sang when I found out that you were going to be born and you were in my womb. Listen to my song, son. Listen to my song. I wonder if she said that. Now, this isn't a mechanical thing. You know, you got to be clear on that. You know, this doesn't mean that all under-resourced people are going to heaven and all over-resourced people are going to hell. Of course not. That's not what it means. But it does mean that God has no intention of tolerating injustice and greed and violence and oppression in this world on a permanent basis. God does not tolerate that, and he will not. It does mean that when, when people get selfish and violent, when rich people watch poor people go hungry and illiterate and they do nothing about it when they could do something, 
When powerful people push around those who are weak because they can get away with it, when folks who have stuff turned a blind eye to the apathetic and just let it and become apathetic and just let it go, when those kinds of things happen in our world, it means that it makes God mad. And now in Christmas, in Jesus, God is going to start to do something about it. And God is going to start to set things right. And he's going to start to initiate the great reversal and turn everything upside down. See, this is not a Norman Rockwell kind of holiday here, is it? One other thing. And this is the part that nobody really understood about how Jesus was going to pull off the great reversal. You know, he's begun to set things right and all, but he will not overthrow Herod by using Herod's methods. He will not overcome violent people by being more violent. He will not overcome the people who are oppressive by becoming more oppressive and arrogant himself. He won't out-Herod Herod. In fact, Jesus will out-love Herod. Jesus will defeat Herod's capacity to hate by his own greater capacity to suffer. Put it all on me, says Jesus. Just put it all on me. I can turn this whole thing around. So just put all the injustice on me and all the violence and all the grieving and all the sin. Just put it on me. And he will defeat Herod's pride by his infinitely greater humility. He will defeat Herod's cruelty and mine by his infinitely greater love. That's Jesus. This is the one who was born in Bethlehem to Mary, the one that we've come here tonight to this place to worship and to welcome into our hearts and homes. I mean, he would be born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. I mean, this is no coincidence. It's kind of interesting that Jesus himself kind of fleshes out and, 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 and sort of incarnates what this great reversal is all about. He would work with his hands. He would be an itinerant rabbi. He would have no place to lay his head. He would go and teach people wherever they would listen, like his mother, like other people, maybe who have stuff, if they would just listen to them. He would be accused unfairly. He would be tried corruptly. He would be mocked mercilessly, he would be executed excruciatingly, and he will overcome the power and dominion and lostness of sin through his own suffering on a cross for you and me, for the rich people and for the poor people. He would do it for Herod the Great too, if Herod the Great would just bow his knee and worship the real king of the Jews. Now, let me just read a little bit of Mary's song again, and, and just with one little slight grammatic shift, and see if you can pick up on the shift, okay? Here it goes again. And Mary said, I, Mary, have performed mighty deeds. I have scattered the proud. I have brought down rulers. I have lifted up the humble. I have filled the hungry. I have sent away the rich. I have helped Israel. I have remembered to be merciful. Anybody pick up on the change? 
Well, of course you did. It's not that hard. It's not Mary that did all that stuff. The song, the song is Mary's. But it's not at all about Mary and what she did. I was listening to one of those radio stations, you know, that plays that Christmas music all the time and just all the time, you know, and so on. I was listening to that, and they were kind of doing a little promo on their station about, you know, kind of what the real meaning of Christmas was and all that. And they said, you know, sometimes it's about celebration. And they played a little snippet of a song around, you know, celebration. They said, sometimes it's about family. And they played a little snippet of a song around that. They said, sometimes the season is about flirting. And then they played that little snippet of, baby, it's cold outside. And then they said, but mostly it's about, and I thought, good, here it comes. Now they're going to tell us what it's really about. Now we're going to find out what the real meaning of Christmas is. Here it comes. And then they said, but mostly the season of the year is about you. It's about you. And then they said, you know, Christmas is different for everybody. Remember Clark Griswold standing in the front yard? It's different. Oh, sorry. Didn't... Maybe I'm not supposed to watch that movie. Sorry. Okay, I didn't really watch it. I don't know who Clark Griswold is. I have no idea. Who's Clark Griswold? I don't know. Remember, it's a little different. It's a little different for everybody, but now I know what it means to me. Really, really, because, you know, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It actually is not your birthday. It's not mine either. It's Mary's song, but it's not actually about her. Mary only does two things in the song. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Everything God does All she does is to praise and glorify and rejoice in God. She does, and by the way, she does not rejoice because God has given her a problem-free life. It's not why she's rejoicing. She's not rejoicing because God has given her an easy season or because it's a nice time of year. She is rejoicing because she has a very big God. The song is called the Magnificat, as I said, because in Latin, that's the first word. Magnify my soul. Magnify God, you know? And, and, and it's kind of like looking through a lens or something, right? Or a telescope or a microscope or something. You know, we're magnifying all the time. You know, and we're either magnifying our problems and ourselves and our own circumstances or we're magnifying God. And you're sort of doing one or the other, right? You're preparing for Christmas by magnifying your, you know, your front yard and your house and your family and all that stuff, or God. It depends on what your mind is dwelling on. What am I counting on? What am I banking on? Where's my confidence? How do I discipline my thoughts? Is my mind full of Scripture? Just you notice in Mary's remarkable song here, Notice all of the allusions to the Old Testament. Oh, she knows the Old Testament. She knows the story. She knows what what this is all about, and that's what she sings about. She's got all kinds of problems in her life. No status, no resources, no human possibilities. But she says, God, notice my humble state 
And she doesn't magnify her problem. She magnifies her God. And God is at work, and God is up to something, and therefore I want to be part of it, and I want to rejoice. So are you living your life that way? Are you preparing for Christmas in that way? You know, magnifying God, focusing on Him, remembering the story. It might be a good thing to gather your family, your kids, your friends around an Advent wreath and just do those scripture readings every night at the supper table and light that candle and remember that story and in the process, magnify God and rejoice because he's sending a Savior. That's what it's all about. Our job is to magnify God because he is initiating the great reversal. Now, here's the thing. Uh, some of you some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, man, I, I sure could use a great reversal myself. Now, I could use a reversal in my life and my family and my job and whatever's going on because the thing about Christmas is underneath all the decorations and all the songs and all the parties and all the social gatherings, you know, one of the things about Christmas is that underneath that, there's a lot of pain, isn't there? And there's a lot of stress, and there's a lot of tension, you know, around family gatherings and so on, and, you know, and maybe some of you are thinking, man, this is, this is, this is going to be the first Christmas without, you know, without dad, or without grandma, or without so-and-so. And some of you are thinking, boy, I could sure use a reversal. You know, I need to be lifted up. I need to be given a vision of hope. You know, and some of you are worried like Mary. You know, Mary had problems, you know. I know some of you worry about money. Maybe you worry about your job. Maybe you worry about your health. You worry about another person. You're worried about something else. And we can do is we can pray and sing along with Mary and focus on God. God, come. God, come and lift us up and change this thing around. And he will. A lot of us are worried about our world. I don't know, you can't be. You just turn on the news, right? I mean, it's one thing after another, isn't it? And so one week it's Colorado Springs, and, and then the next week it's San Bernardino, California, and what's it going to be next week or next month? And 14 people die, and 20-some people are injured, and, a, and a, Christmas isn't going to be the same for those families, is it? There's a lot of pain under there, and we worry about our world, and we worry about little children who go hungry, and we worry about war and violence and racism, and there's hostility and distrust between people groups, and I'm worried about immorality. People have such a hard time living good lives and just worried about the mess our world is in, and, and I think, you know, we're worried about my life, and I'm worried about our world. Well, my advice then and I don't mean to gloss over that. That's real. Of course it is. But my advice to you is to sing with Mary, is to join your voice with hers and sing her song and magnify God and remember that God is up to something. He's up to something, and he's changing everything around, and a great reversal is on the way for you and me and for those people in San Bernardino and wherever else 
a great change is a coming. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, along with Jesus' mother, Mary. Let's pray. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has done great things for me. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. And so now, Lord, our prayer tonight is that you would lift us up that you would lift us up into the light and joy of your presence and of your coming to this earth and to our lives. Thank you for the great reversal that you are bringing to us and to our world. And so we magnify you along with your mother Mary. Amen. Let's stand.